wanted to make a comment to you about the stirring choir anthem you heard this morning. I didn't know this until this week, but if you see there the, the name of Almeida Pierce, who wrote the words and music of that fine anthem, there's actually a, a tie here, some of you might be interested to know, that was written a number of years ago, as you could see, 1962. But if I have it correct, Almeida Pierce had a son named Bill Pierce. Many of you will remember Bill Pierce, a wonderful gospel musician, vocalist, and trombonist in the 60s and 70s. Bill Pierce now lives at Calvary Home, just south of us here, and he has worshiped with us on recent occasions. So there's a little bit of a local tie to that anthem this morning. As we turn to our scripture in Matthew 11, I want to just say to you to position this in context that I think that the final several verses of Matthew 11 really are a pivotal turning point for this gospel. As you see the organization of the different gospels, it's, it's not unusual to see this, a kind of structure where things reach a point and then things turn and, and move out in a different direction. For example, in Mark, that comes in the eighth chapter when Peter makes his epic confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and and everything seems to build from there. As I've lived with Matthew and tried to hear it and understand its rhythms and its structure, I really believe that the words Jesus speaks from Matthew, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, especially form a point at which suddenly all things he's been saying up till now become crystal clear, and more is built upon that. So listen carefully as we read verse 25 through 30 of Matthew chapter 11. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was for your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And Father, may you bless the understanding we gain from this, your holy word. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you were making a first ever visit to a famous hospital south of here in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins Hospital, I hope that if you had never been there before and never seen this site before, you might think about building into your visit an extra 10 or 15 minutes so that as you moved about in that vast complex of buildings and covers many blocks and many buildings, you would go and find the original building of the Johns Hopkins Hospital. It's an imposing Victorian structure that's been restored and anyone there could direct you to it. What I would want you to see there is the domed ceiling of the entrance 
lobby of that original hospital building, and the fact that underneath that dome stands a statue. It's a ten and a half foot marble statue carved by a Danish sculptor named Thorvaldsen. It's a statue of Jesus Christ, larger than life, standing there in facing the entrance lobby of that hospital in this posture with his arms outstretched, the nail prints visible in his hands. And Thorvaldsen called that wonderful statue Christ the divine healer. It makes a powerful impression on you if you've never seen it. This is a secular institution. It might surprise you. It's not a Roman Catholic hospital or associated with any Christian denomination, but several of its founders were Christians, and they wanted that statue there, and there it has stayed, and I believe over some court fights, as a matter of fact, there it stays today. As Jesus Christ holds out his hands and beckons to suffering people who come there with all kinds of needs to Johns Hopkins Hospital. It's not a surprise that daily the hospital staff finds flowers and stuffed animals and written prayers and little personal tokens around the feet of the statue, nor is it a surprise that one toe of the statue has sort of a superstitious thing. You can see how it's worn because many people have reached out to touch that I suppose, from a superstitious idea of contact with Christ. Well, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, we hear the live, historic Jesus Christ, not a man of marble, speaking an invitation that shines across the centuries as being among the most winsome and powerful words he ever spoke. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and loaded down, I will give you my rest. There's something wonderful to consider here. And I tell you, it's better than a sight of any impressive and yet silent marble statue. Because it's about the salvation of God, brought to mankind by Jesus Christ, And exhibiting to us, I would say to you, the very heart of the New Testament gospel, if not the very heart of the Bible. Luke chapter 19 says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. In Hebrews 7.25, it is said about him, he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by way of him. He is one who rescues people eternally, and completely at the point of their need. He's the one who fulfills that prophecy of Isaiah 45, verse 22, where we read in that Scripture, Turn to me and be saved, all ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Pastor Light read this morning from Isaiah 55, Come to God, come to the waters, come and Buy that which requires no money. All these wonderful invitations come together in this one we read here in Matthew eleven twenty eight. And our text here marks in this development of Matthew a time for human decision. The questions are being asked. The ridicule is being brought against him. The anger is being expressed. 
We heard last time the question of no other than John the Baptist who was confused in his faith and and unsure whether his original profession was right or not. And he said, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, I did not read the passage immediately before our text today, but it comes between last time and this, and it, it tells of judgment as Jesus had gone and preached to a couple of Galilean towns, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and did miracles there. And yet they apparently staunchly refused him and stood with their arms folded and would have nothing to do with him. And he speaks judgment on them and says it it would be better for the very worst people than for you because God's revelation has come to you, but you've refused it. Even Sodom he said, would be better on the day of judgment than you. And out of that word of unbelief and condemnation, we have the passage now that we've read today. In other words, people are making up their minds about Jesus for or against. Many are going one way or the other. Humanity's being divided between those who come to Christ and those who are offended by him. I think I told you when I preached on this passage a number of years ago in this church, a different message, I gave you some idea of the way this verse, 1128, is especially powerful to me because I have a memory from childhood. I don't think I was probably more than seven or eight when I came upon a tract, and I can remember where I was. I have a picture in my mind reading this tract that someone had left with this verse on it, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I remember there was a kind of electricity about that. It, it grabbed hold of me. You might think, why would a seven or eight-year-old boy think of himself as being weary and heavy laden? I hadn't seen very much of the world or of trouble or disappointment or any bitterness or anything at that point in my life. I had a happy childhood. But these words just grabbed me. And even now, as I've preached on them a number of times in past years, and I consider them again today, I would say to you that the magnetism, the power in this invitation has not faded one bit for me. It has only grown stronger and more climactic in its appeal. For here we have the greatest man in all of history appealing to humanity at the point of our greatest need to find nothing less than rest for our souls, forgiveness and peace with God. There are two main divisions I want you to see in this text today, and there are two words beginning with R to focus on. The first concerns Jesus as the source of divine revelation, and the second looks at him as the giver of divine rest. First of all, look at verses 25 through 27 where we see Jesus revealing the face of God to those who have a childlike faith. He's dealing with unbelief. He's dealing with the fact that even some who do believe, like John the Baptist, have questions and can't seem to figure him out. And we start to wonder, why is it that some people believe in Christ and trust him and are transformed for salvation and others refuse him? One man might come to him and his twin brother refuses. Why is this? How do we explain this? Well, Jesus never sought to explain it in terms of human intellect or IQ or education or accomplishments. You see here how he explained it. He thanked his father for revealing the truth about himself 
according to God's own good pleasure. In other words, God's act of divine sovereignty in making salvation known in a human heart is the key. Not being wise, not being learned, the grace of God that has to come and open up a humble heart, a person who is childlike and trusting, as God's Holy Spirit says, here is the truth, I'm showing it to you. I think of proud and arrogant people whom God has converted, and sometimes he does convert the proud and arrogant, but when he does it, he first has to knock them down and humble them. Saul of Tarsus. Wow, there was a man... I don't know if any man's ever ridden higher on his own pride and achievements as a relatively young individual. Saul was at the very top. If he were in Washington, D.C. today, he'd be a man to watch. He'd be Barack Obama or somebody like that, the man destined to be the next top leader. He had a great resume. He was smart. He could argue anybody else off their feet, and he was angry. He was angry at the revelation of God in this Christ, such that he went around trying to destroy the young church. And you remember the story of how Saul of Tarsus had to be knocked off his horse, laying in the dust, and literally physically blinded, I think, as a symbol to show how weak and how poor his religious understanding was. He actually knew nothing. And then God revealed Christ to him and showed him his Lord and Savior. And like a little child, Saul of Tarsus had to be led into the city because he couldn't even see where he was going. And God had changed his heart and shown him the only glimpse of God that a man or woman will ever get in this world. You see, the word revelation here means that it's God making something clear that isn't clear by human means. It's not the the, uh, use of our learning Jesus came into this world. He lived a sinless life. He had a spotless character. He worked supernatural miracles. He spoke things that amazed people and in, in uncanny ways made the truth of God come alive. And then he died on that cross and rose again with historic evidences, and yet people saw that, and some of them who saw it, remember Easter Sunday, they were right there. They knew whether it happened or didn't happen, and they said, well, we've got to invent a story to cover this up. We can't stand what our eyes tell us. We can't stand the evidence about him. We've got to change it into something else because we won't believe in him. Those were the smart people. Those were the educated people. And God in his sovereignty says, if anyone's going to know this truth, I'm going to have to reveal it to them. I'm going to have to pull down the shutters. We have shutters on some windows or the sun would be in your eyes. You have shutters on your physical mind against the truth of God unless the Holy Spirit comes and rips those shutters open to let the truth in. The explanation for letting people see this truth is a revealed truth, Jesus said. It depends on God making it known. Now he says you can find some kind of a human indicator of the type of person or at least the the frame of mind or or attitude that a person is likely to be in when I come and open, when God opens those shutters and makes that revelation known. Why, it's going to be a person who's humble and childlike. That's the person who's going to be ready for revelation. God reveals himself to spiritual babies. We had 
Pastor York's newest child in the earlier service this morning, two weeks old. Mom was holding him, jostling him, protecting him as she sang hymns of praise. And I was thinking, what a great illustration of this utterly, utterly dependent individual. He has this little man, Silas, has no abilities that we know about. He has no resume. He has nothing to bring praise upon him. He's absolutely helpless and depends entirely on the care of mom and dad. Babies don't even know how much they don't know. And that's how we begin our spiritual lives, not even knowing what we don't know until God in Christ reveals himself. In Jesus Christ is the mirror of the face of God. God says, if you would ever know me, you're going to know me through Christ. I'm going to have to show that to you because you're spiritually helpless like that three-month-old infant who, who simply has the instinct somehow in his little uneducated mind to cry out in the middle of the night when he needs something. He's not articulately saying what he needs. He's not sending mom a text message, you know, it's the diaper or I need to be fed. He's just crying. That's all he knows how to do. And I believe Jesus Christ was saying that's how God reduces a human being to come to God, humbling us enough that we cry out to God and say, show me who you are. And he shows us in the person of Jesus. Notice in our text, verse 27 says, Jesus alone is the one who reveals God. He's the mirror we look into to see what God looks like. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus said some pretty astonishing things. That one's right at the head of the list. If anyone ever comes into this pulpit calling himself a pastor and says, no one ever knows God except those to whom I choose to reveal him, I hope you would rise up as a body and drag that person out and lock the doors against him so he never gets in here again. Jesus claimed something that no man can claim. I reveal God. The Father and I have such a relationship that if you see me, you see the Father. John 1.18 says, no man has ever seen God. But it says, in an unusual expression, God, the one and only, that's the NIV translation, God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, Jesus, has made him known. Nobody's ever seen God, but Jesus makes him known. And knowing that Jesus Christ, the man of flesh who lived in this world, is the beating heart of God, that is the heart of the Christian gospel. That is the pivotal point towards which all Old Testament prophecy extended itself and met Jesus Christ, the revelation of God to man. The Scripture says there's going to be a day a final day of judgment when Christ has returned and Christ himself is the judge. And it implies strongly that there will be a question. It doesn't say these exact words, but it implies that the question will be put to every human soul, one question, by the judge. What have you done with me? How have you responded to me? How did you react to me back there in 2007 when the gospel was made clear to you?
And your career resume then is going to be nothing but a pile of charred ashes. The good works you've done for other people in compassion and and in mercy in this world, I'm glad you've done them, but they're just going to be so much dust. One thing's going to be needed, a knowledge of God that comes from seeing him in the face of Jesus Christ, the only one who can reveal him. There's no correct knowledge of the one true God anywhere in this world except that which is revealed by Jesus the Son. Yes, Christianity is a very exclusive religion. We're very intolerant. Write it down. There's no true knowledge of the true and living God except that which comes by Jesus Christ the Son. Because if that isn't true, I have to take this book and start ripping pages out of it and throwing them all over. Because that understanding doesn't come from one verse. It comes from the entire gospel. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Are we tolerant of people of other faiths as human beings? Of course we are. We must be. Are we tolerant of erroneous human religion that raises up false gods? No. The only true knowledge of God comes from Jesus Christ, the Son who reveals him. Martin Luther wrote one time, here the bottom falls out of all human merit, all our powers, all abilities of human reason, all that free will that human beings so exalt. Luther said it all counts for nothing before God. Christ must do for us, and he must give us everything. Jesus reveals the face of God to those with a childlike faith. Now there's a second thing here, and it's that great invitation that is spoken beginning in verse 28. And I say there that Jesus grants eternal rest to the weary who ask him for it. Jesus gave an invitation here that asks you to recognize that you have a need that only he can satisfy. He appealed to people who are weary and heavy laden to give them rest. What was it, again, that made me as a seven or eight-year-old boy find that appealing? Unless I had some innate knowledge deep inside me that there was something out of adjustment between me and God, even as an eight-year-old, and that here was the one who appealed and said he could set it right. I don't know what you think of when you hear the words weary and heavy laden. Maybe you think of the way your life is going. You say, hey, I'm one of these people who works a 60 or 65 or 70 hour week and maybe you're a working mom and you have to take care of a house and feed the family after you work a job and you fall into bed every night with your nerves frazzled and relationships aren't in touch the way they should be and you've been fighting traffic and you've got 10 more things on your program tomorrow than you can possibly be, and you say, yes, I'm weary, I'm heavy laden, I need a vacation. Well, it's not physical rest that this text is talking about. You may need that, but that's not what the text is talking about. It's talking about that spiritual unrest, that spiritual, unspoken, hard-to-define need that's deep in the center of every man and woman and child. I heard an interesting testimony just yesterday, and the individual is here in the room. I'm not going to embarrass him by identifying him, and I didn't ask his permission, but I trust he's going to remain anonymous enough. One of my privileges as pastor 
is to hear the testimonies of our new member candidates. Some of them are just fantastic. I heard a man tell me yesterday about growing up into manhood with almost no church background, no real instruction in the Bible, didn't bother going to church. He'd been baptized by parents who thought that was important, but never taught anything, never learned anything from the Bible. Grew up, went through military service, got some training, got a good job, and he was out working. Happened that he rode about in trucks with co-workers, and there was one co-worker who always had a Bible on the dashboard of the truck. Well, you can kind of imagine how the other workers like to be the partner assigned to ride with him. Uh, he's strange. He's different. Don't put me with him. Maybe he's going to corner me and, and, you know, try to pin me down with some religious thing. And this man was honest enough to say, I didn't even like this guy. I kind of avoided him as much as I could. And one day this man gave the gentleman a Bible. And it was one of these Bibles that had in the front, I think Gideon Bibles and others have these, you know, that read these chapters for different things, for salvation, for different subjects. And, and it had a number of things that he ought to read in the front. And he said, here, I'm, I want you to have this. Well, this man took the Bible home and thought, hmm, somebody gave me a Bible. Probably didn't think a lot about it, but then one day, for some reason, he opened it and he started to read. And he said, it didn't make very much sense to me. I'd never been given the kind of guidance I would need to understand it, but I was reading, and particularly it seemed the verses or chapters in the beginning of Romans started to mean something. And those chapters started to tell this man he was a sinner before God, that he was weary and heavy laden in his soul, that he didn't have any rest before God and he didn't know where to get it from. He said he even went to see the movie, The Passion of the Christ, and it didn't make sense to him. He didn't know what it was about. And he was out running one day and he said, I, I, I'd been pursued by this thing. It was dogging me. I couldn't get it out of my mind day after day that, that something was wrong, that I wasn't in a right relation to God and I didn't know how to do anything about it. And he went out running. And he ran and ran and ran in the park until he was exhausted. And he said, it was almost like I was trying to run away from this thing that was after me. And I finally dropped down on a park bench, exhausted, and said, all right, God, I don't know what it is I'm supposed to do, but I surrender. I surrender to you, God. I need rest. And it wasn't just rest to get over a hard run. It was rest to cure his soul that he needed. Remember how Jesus observed at the end of Matthew 9 that the people he looked upon were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. People that needed rest. People who had burdens loaded on them. And they weren't just physical burdens. They weren't just schedule burdens or family burdens. In uh, Matthew 23, the early part of that chapter, Jesus describes what the Pharisees were doing to people religiously. And legally, he says, here were these Pharisees, they were the experts in religion, and quote, they tie up heavy burdens and put them on men's shoulders, and they're not willing to lift a finger to help. In other words, if you've got a religion that tells you, here's how to approach God, work, 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 you're just going to have burden, 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 and nobody's ever going to take the weight off, because religion and morality do not 
take the burden away. Jesus spoke the word, one of the Bible's wonderful words about what the antidote is, what the need is. It's called rest. You could do a word study on this. I don't have time for much of it, but Psalm 55, King David was in a hard time in his life, and he he was praying, and he said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I might fly away and rest. I just want to get out of this situation and go somewhere and rest. In another occasion, he had a slightly different cry, Psalm 38.3, when he was looking back at a time when he had been sinful and rebellious in his conscience, and he knew he wasn't doing what God wanted. And telling about that time in Psalm 38, he said, my bones had no rest in them because of my sin. I was wrong with God. I was out of accord. Everything was jangled. People everywhere know what this is. They can't define it, but they know what it is, like the young man in our midst who who was running, 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 trying to get away from the knowledge of it. But they don't find anything in this world that fulfills it or makes it better. The much sought-after thing is what the Bible in Hebrew calls shalom, peace with God. Elsewhere, it's called the Sabbath rest of the people of God. And believe me, that's not about taking a nap on Sunday afternoon. That is actually the final array of God's people being present with him when all is right and sin is no more and and his people are in an everlasting Sunday of worship and fellowship and well-being in the presence of God. That's heaven. Complete harmony of a soul forgiven by the grace of God, and realign with him. Peace with your past, confidence about the present and the future. And people know they must be able to find this somewhere, and they they try all kinds of things. Glass after glass of liquor goes down, thinking they'll find rest. Oh, let's take a cruise. Let's get a month-long cruise. That's what we need, a long soak in the sun of the Bahamas. That'll give us rest. Maybe I need an affair to get away from this marriage. That'll give me rest. The golf course, that'll give it. Riches, fame, celebrity, security. And guess what? Nobody that gets these things is able to rest in them. St. Augustine had it right centuries and centuries ago when he prayed that famous prayer, Oh God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. God's rest is an end to that inner desperation that tells us everything's out of joint. The world isn't right. Jesus said, come and rest yourself. I'm the place where you can rest. I have rest for your soul. What do you have to do to have that? Well, you have to recognize your helplessness. You have to be willing to say, oh God, I'm not the great person that I thought I was. I'm a helpless baby. I can't do anything about my need. You see me as I am. And I look to Christ and see in him the perfect revelation of you. Bring those things together, oh God, and give me rest in Christ. You see, Jesus didn't say, go to God and find rest, did he? He didn't say, go to church, go to synagogue. He said, come to me. He was the source of rest. And he even uses this comparison of being yoked 
to the person who comes to him in a relationship of faith and trust. And maybe that, to some people, that image doesn't, they don't like it. They picture the big old wooden ox yoke. Boy, I don't want to have something hard like that around my neck. What is Jesus saying? You know, a yoke is an instrument that, that puts two animals into a work relationship. Is Jesus saying, come to me, we'll get yoked together, and I'll supply half of the effort, and you supply half of the effort, and we'll take care of the sin problem? No, sir. That's not what he said. In fact, he stressed the easiness of the yoke because he was reminding us that the work part was already done by him. Well, at the point he was speaking here, it would be done at the cross, but for us it's been done. The Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle in the mid-19th century wrote about this. He said, Jesus' yoke is no more of a burden to me than feathers are to a bird. His yoke is easy. The burden's light. He's done the work. You get the benefits. That's what it means to be yoked to Christ. And so now he condenses into this climactic invitation that I believe occupies a pivotal position here in the development of the Gospel of Matthew. 1128, the very heart. How do you become a Christian? Come to me, you who are weary, you who are heavy laden. I will be your rest. Come and rest in me. If God is revealing to you that I am his human face, here on earth. And that long ago invitation is still being made. Boys and girls up in the balcony, moms and dads, choir members, the invitation's still there. Come. Come to me. Dump your cares on me. I can carry them. Unload your sins on me. I already have dealt with them. I died for them. There aren't any preconditions. He doesn't say, clean up your act, start living a good life, and then come to me. He says, come. Come now. Come without any conditions. Come exactly as you are. Come receive what only I can give. Come to me, all you who are laboring and are heavy laden in your souls. I and I alone want to give you rest. Have you come to Christ? I thank God this morning that I know scores and scores of you have. And if you're wobbling somehow in your Christian life today, you don't have to come all over again. You need to be reassured that having come He's not letting you go. John 6, 37 has the guarantee that says, he that comes to me, I will never cast him out. If you're thinking, I've come, but now I think Jesus has gotten sick and tired of me because I'm so weak and wobbly. No, if you've come, he will not cast you out. But somebody hasn't come. And unless you come, you'll never know the rest. You'll not only go through this life without rest, you'll be in eternity without rest. That's the most awful thing I can contemplate. The Bible's final chapter, Revelation 22, echoes this invitation again. That's why I think it's so important, because it's one of the last things the Bible says. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears it say, come. 
Let the thirsty one come. Come to him. The only one who is the face of God revealed in this world. He can rest you. Guaranteed. Amen. Father, I pray that there would be no one here like the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida who saw more than we've seen, who saw Jesus face to face. They heard his voice. They saw his miracles. And they folded their arms and walked away. And Jesus said it would be more bearable for the people of Sodom in the final day than for them. Having seen your face, having heard your invitation, draw to yourself, reveal to your people whom you've known mysteriously before the foundation of this world, reveal to them what you can do in Christ and draw them to come. I pray for the honor and praise of this great inviter, Jesus himself. Amen.